Welcome to the third episode of Season 2 of Our Voices Amplified, the official podcast of Kona's Blue Ridge Journal. This podcast will take you with us as we explore the 2021 virtual Kona Conference. Through this podcast, delegates like you will get the chance to speak their mind on Kona-related topics and learn more about this conference and one another. My name is Sean Ferris from the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I'll be your host for this episode. Tonight, we will kick off our show with a conversation on polarization and partisan healing facilitated by Anne Duan. Then we will shift gears and hear from some distinguished Kona alumni who will inspire us with encouragement and stories of how their Kona experience shaped who they are today. Let's get right into it. To introduce our first segment, it is clear that the U.S. has become deeply polarized in the past few decades. 70% of Americans cement their political beliefs for the right or left than they did 20 years ago. Meanwhile, mutual animosity between parties has increased by 30% according to a 2014 Pew Research Center study. As many of us find it harder to understand the views of those on the other side, it is important now more than ever for us to reach out, have civil discussion, and facilitate partisan healing. Let's listen to Washington's Anne Duan as she leads a conversation with some delegates on how we can move towards a more civil, perfect union. In the past few decades, technology has advanced rapidly and has come to play a dominant role in almost all of our lives. Digitalization now enables algorithms to feed us only the news we want to hear. Meanwhile, many news networks have departed from nonpartisanship and aligned themselves with certain parties and values. This has been increasingly detrimental to the political climate and the future of partisan politics in America. Thus, here to discuss this issue, I'm honored to have several guests with me. Without further ado, please welcome our co-host for tonight's conversation. Hello, I'm Kimber Cole from the Delaware Delegation. I'm back again. Hey, guys. Hi, everyone. I'm Tara Filch-Basson from the Washington State or Washington slash Oregon Delegation. Hello, my name is Alexander Church from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I'm Advait Manikantan from the Republic of Texas. Thank you, delegates. I'm so excited to listen in on this conversation. For our first question, many of us often hear about how our parents, grandparents, or older relatives have been indoctrinated by cable news or Facebook. Do you think a similar situation is happening to young people? And if so, how can we best prevent this? I'd like to begin by saying it is true that, uh, you know, the older generation has been influenced by social media technologies. You've mentioned Facebook and cable news in your thing, but I think one specific technology that uh, could be talked about is WhatsApp. New things such as WhatsApp forwards have been spreading lots of news, sometimes good information, sometimes very terrible misinformation. And I think what our younger generation has in different, like uh, has that's different from the older generation is the ability to recognize and identify these signs of misinformation. I think that's one thing where the younger generation completely differs from the older uh, generation. And basically the younger generation has the scope to uh, critically think about how these situations can arise and how like, you know, a political uh, landscape can be, their own political landscape can be formed with their own critical thinking skills. Well, I agree with kind of what you said in the premise of the fact that there are a lot of people who are able to think more critically than older generations. I don't think that's as widespread as you think, because especially in some of the more rural areas where there's not as much political diversity, it's really easy to still fall into that trap on cable news, on Facebook, on other social media sites, such as Instagram, Snapchat, and things like that, where it's really still easy to fall into the trap of fake news, of misinformation, and it's really easy to still be easily swayed. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said about social media algorithms. Um, Specifically, I mean, I think that most social media companies have figured out the best way to keep their users engaged. 
as much as possible is to create a platform in which they're comfortable and they're interacting with constantly people who don't make them necessarily uncomfortable or angry or upset. And so this is the case with uh, Instagram, TikTok, you know, you choose who you follow and your recommended is based off of that. Um, and so absolutely we have, um, I guess, more tools under our belt for social media literacy and information literacy because we are so constantly bombarded by information. But the ways in which that information is presented is specifically done in a way that is supposed to not make us uncomfortable. So you have things like the alt-right pipeline, if uh, anyone is familiar. I think so I can like speak specifically to, not even specifically, like most social media sites and like generally with media in general, the profitability of that entire industry is just based on audience retention. And that's what most social media companies have started to realize over the past few years. The easiest way to maintain audience retention is to uh, shock audiences, have like most brief and attractive headlines that people can agree with or get outraged about. And most times that falls into one of the political extremes. Um, so like while most like sponsorships and ads for like social media sites back in like the early 2000s and whatnot, like up to the early 2010s, it was like stupid mobile games, and, like different like websites that were like up and coming. But now if you like look through like advertisements and whatnot, like that's from YouTube to like Snapchat to Instagram, all of these advertisements are like often political in nature. Like you'll get just like random like PragerU videos as your ads in front of YouTube videos when you've watched like none of that content in the past. And it's because social media websites have compromised their desire initially to provide an independent platform for like the profit motive in a sense. And I think it's really dangerous when social media websites do market their space, like their platform as like a free and independent space for thinking where anybody can share their beliefs, but they promote like whoever pays the money. That's why, you know, on Instagram, you can get like your explore page full of like horrible propaganda that you've just like never even interacted with in the past. And oftentimes like Instagram presents this is something that is just like objective. It's like an advertisement that should be promoted to you. And so oftentimes it can be really misleading and it's really dangerous to show that to like impressionable youth in a lot of cases, um, especially with how they present the website. That's my take on this. Uh, I hope I didn't sound like a like theorist or whatever, but I think it's like really shocking sometimes to see that kind of thing. And the, to the latter part of the question, uh, like, you know, uh, it was asked, how can we best prevent this? I definitely think we have to fight fire with fire here. Like, you know, and uh, these social media technologies have been, you know, throwing these using cookies and other search-based uh, engines to track our internet usage. However, Instagram is still fundament fundamentally a media site where friends connect can connect with friends, influencers, and everyone. And I think the best way we can combat such a crisis is by influencing and educating the members of such social ma social media platforms, whether they be young, old, however. It's just best for us to approach this in a manner by using Instagram. I mean, Black Lives Matter spread. The, the news of Black Lives Matter spread like wildfire because of social media websites like Instagram, Snapchat, and also cable news networks such as CNN, although I, that does seem a bit redundant, sorry. CNN, uh, CBS, Fox News, not so much because their political, uh, political views did lean against the uh, Black Lives Matter crisis, but still, cable news did have a large uh, role to play, as did other uh, social media websites and, like, you know, platforms. I think, uh, like, even for Palestine, a ton of my friends have been posting about protests and other information that is vitally accessible to the youth of today. And I think by fighting fire with fire, aka using social media to combat this propaganda by spreading information and educating people, I think we can best combat this crisis. 
However, and kind of to play devil's advocate here, you run the risk of these social media sites being biased in and of themselves. For example, when a site like Twitter, for example, bans Donald Trump, although that might have been justified, that might have been against the guidelines and the rules that everybody signs up for when they read and check the little box that says, I agree to the terms of service, that's definitely politically lent because there's a large source of people that rely on that influencer, for lack of a better word, to get a lot of their information. And a similar thing is happening on Instagram with some of the other things. For example, with the Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of people saying things like ACAV and horrible things about police officers dominated the day when people trying to defend some police officers while saying some are good and some are bad were often drowned out by the political extreme. Because at the end of the day, if we try to do something, we still have that profit motive and things will still be driven to the extremes. I'm sorry to interject here, but again, ACAB was not actually created by these platforms. It was spread as misinformation by an influencer. And likewise, we still need to combat that by educating people using these influencing platforms. I think that we're in a position right now, which is really interesting, which is just the general subjective nature of what is propaganda and what is information. Um, that That argument can be taken in a number of ways, and I don't have the answer to that. You know, um, on one hand, you have uh, Alexander here saying, you know, ACAB would necessarily be propaganda. Well, I'm someone who agrees with that statement. And so it's a really interesting position to be put in um, where you're saying that one thing is propaganda. Um, and then I'm sure that all of us here would agree that things like QAnon are propaganda, but you still have people who believe in that as the fundamental truth. And that's one of the things that is happening with echo chambers is you can't even agree on what the definition of a movement or a word or a political ideology or an understanding is. Um, And so I think it's really important to have conversations outside of the internet about the things that you're learning on the internet to make sure that you're using those in context where you're agreeing upon the basic definition of the words you're using. Um, And I guess just going back to the, the original statement, you know, comparing our generation's use of social media compared to older generations' use of media consumption as a whole, um, the biggest difference is that we are consuming, you know, at 10 times the rate of any generation before us. We are, like I said earlier, constantly bombarded with new information, constantly aware of things going on around the world and in different geographical areas that we really wouldn't have been able to know about before in such an instant, instant manner and all of the time. Um, And so it's really, uh, to counter that though, we also have Uh, higher media literacy. Um, We learn about things in school, like how to consume information uh, in an unbiased way, how to do research from a multitude of perspectives. And that's something that has to be taught now because it is so uh, crucial to how we educate ourselves on different things. And so I think that we're simultaneously compared to older generations exposed to so much more information, while at the same time having Uh, more of the tools to combat and to understand those things. And the most important thing for people to do, really, in my opinion, uh, to combat the sort of echo chambers you can end up in and the uh, hyperpolarization is just to have these conversations outside of the internet and check what you're saying to make sure it it makes sense in a real, real life context. Yeah, kind of on that, I think as far as like preventing this phenomenon goes, like most people, not most people, many people have like both sides will try to say that like, the way to prevent this is to, you know, censor their opponents' political views on these websites. Um, obviously, that's like counterproductive when both sides are saying the exact same thing, just opposite in nature. Um, you know, some people think that we should introduce a public sector to the social media um, industry so that people will have their views, you know, protected like everywhere. It's kind of like ridiculous because we suggest all of these like 
ludicrous, like in a sense, like radically charged arguments to this argument, then we're neglecting that like since the beginning of this institution, the main source of education in the United States should probably be our education system. And so people will always make the point that we need to regulate these social media sites. We need to like introduce all of these different like customs just to make sure that people are not being taught this or this or this. When we can just educate our youth with like more civic education, more just like political knowledge, all of this stuff, historical knowledge, so that people actually have a fundamental understanding of the things that they are being misinformed about so they can question things that they are taught on social media and they'll be able to learn information for themselves in the future instead of being indoctrinated by these websites that are entirely misleading. I hate to interject here, but uh, Kemper, do you, is your opinion, like think about critical race theory and how it's playing a major role in the media today. Certain states, especially those leaning towards the conservative side of uh, things, they have been trying to shut down critical race theory, which is seen by many political analysts as a fundamentally important piece of education to uh, recognize that uh, certain groups, especially uh, Blacks, African Americans, have been uh, have been treated like, I'm sorry to say this in such a platform, like complete Okay, sorry, I'm at a loss for words here. But you know, critical race theory is being banned by such educational systems. And do you think that these education systems are going to teach us about what's propaganda and what's not propaganda? I certainly don't believe so. At this point, I don't see our education system fundamentally reforming unless there are some sort of proposals or ideas passed on to legislators that this propaganda shouldn't exist. However, legislators are the ones who are trying to create this propaganda so they can advance their political career and their views. Overall, it's just this huge cycle that never ends. And at the end of it, educators can't do a thing about it. So how do you suggest that the education system can teach these people about uh, against misinformation and propaganda? I mean, as far as these like horribly regressive legislation, like being brought up by certain like legislators, such as like you said, banning the mention of critical race theory in schools, um, that's really like on behalf of like you know protesters and all this sort of thing to like make sure that we are like fighting for these issues to be taught in schools because it's the most important thing for like the future generations, just un- making sure that we understand all of these things that are so integral to understanding systemic inequities in the United States. We need to make sure that these things are taught and that they are not restricted. And because when we introduce like bans on this sort of knowledge, it's what leads to like the echo chambers that we see on you know social media websites. It's the reason we're having this conversation today because you know many people, our legislators in particular, use education as like a bargaining tool for their political gain. It's really awful, and that's what this banning the critical race um, theory from being taught in school has been. It's like you said, it's just legislators trying to use education to their political advantage. And I think it's really imperative that future for future generations, like our generation, or just those aligned with us, those who care about you know representing underrepresented communities, that we fight for like all of these things to be taught in school and for future generations to be taught about important theories like the, uh, or knowledge like the critical race theory. I think um, I just want to say one thing really quickly, and then we can move on to the next question. And because I know we have a few of them, but not to cut anyone else off, I do think Offit brings up a really uh, important point that I agree with, which is that the views of the state and subsequently the views that are reflected in our education system are not inherently unbiased. And that is really, really important to remark. You know, 50 years ago, uh, this country would not have even acknowledged 
or, or I don't even know why I say 50 years ago, honestly, 10 years ago, uh, the federal level of this nation would not have acknowledged the existence of systemic racism. And so to imply that the state would be uh, inherently teaching what is right in its education system is not um, something that would be true and also not something I think Kemper was trying to say. And I really agree with his second point, which is that we need to be having these conversations about critical race theory, about the things that we want to see taught in especially our history curriculums. But, um, you know, anti-racism runs deep in any subject we're learning at school. I think it's really important to uh, consider that we need to be taking those conversations uh, off of online and really making sure that those are accessible to every single person um, and that we're, we're we're seeing people in the streets, people uh, in their state capitals lobbying for uh, the kinds of education legislation that they want to see passed and not it goes further than education really in, in any um, government agency where it's possible to implement systems that are going to reverse the damage this country has done to marginalized groups for so long. That's something that we need to be pushing for. Um, and so I think that there was sort of like a weird misunderstanding there. I, I definitely, um, Offit's point about, you know, the, the possible biased nature of the state and the idea that the state cannot serve as a neutral or a positive good in all cases, I 100% agree with that. And I also 100% agree with Kemper's point about bringing these conversations about that um, in relation to our original discussion about the internet, bringing those conversations out of the internet and into uh, the, the formal legislation we wanna see in our country. If I could just add one more thing real quick. I think this is a quote, this is a quote from Stephen Breyer on the recent um, Supreme Court case with the student who was suspended from cheerleading over a social media post. Um, he wrote that America's public schools are the, nursery of are the nurseries of democracy. That being said, we need to make sure that we're able to have difficult conversations and make sure that we're able to have conversations with people that we disagree with and people that we agree with and be able to come to common ground, especially in our education system, so that we can learn that for our future. On that note, I think we'll now move on to our second question. So for our second question, do you think polarization in the news and on social media will become more prominent as technology and algorithms become more advanced? If I may, I think this is definitely something we touched on a lot in the first question, which is uh, really important to talk about is these algorithms that are um, serving in such a way to keep you engaged, like Kemper was talking about, the profit motive of the social media industry serves uh, inherently in such a way that keeps you consistently engaged in their platform. Um, and so the, the biggest way that they've been able to do that is constantly feeding you content that you would be interested in. Um, and that can sort of that can serve in two ways, which one of them is serving you content, which you've been exposed to in the past and, and very similar things. Another way is feeding you content that is somewhat similar to the things you've been engaged with, something you might not necessarily disagree with, but something that is more engaging, something that is more addicting. And so I actually, I want to take this as an opportunity to talk about the alt-right pipeline just a little bit, because uh, if you guys aren't familiar, it's a phenomenon where... Um, especially with young teenage boys, but obviously it can happen to anyone is um, typically on YouTube, you start out with your fun, you know, gaming videos made by older teenager, young 20s uh, men. And then it sort of feeds into Ben Shapiro, liberal owned compilation videos, and you're feeding into um, what really becomes alt-right propaganda. And so the further down that pipeline you go, um, I won't lie, the more engaging the content is, the more addicting it is, the more it makes you feel maybe good about your personal identity. It makes you feel justified in the feelings you might have about the world uh, and the anger you might feel, uh, the, the opposition you might have um, to social movements you see going on in the world. Um, and so it's really, really 
interesting to see social media companies not only showing you content that you might already be engaging with and want to see more of, because that isn't necessarily as harmful as the second kind I'm talking about, which is showing you information that is related to the things that you're interested in, but 10 times more interesting, engaging, and uh, in this case, and in a lot of other cases, harmful um, to your existence in, in a real life community um, as a whole. I want to talk about the alt-right pipeline just a little bit, because I think that as a white teenager from Massachusetts, I was one of the people who was dangerously close to falling into it. I was one of those people when I was about 14, 15 that would watch PragerU every day unironically. And it kind of justified my selfishness as a teenager. And the kind of the two things that were able to pull me out of that, one is that I started attending a private school. So I had attended a public school in the suburbs. It was 97% white. There weren't a lot of different perspectives. But then I started attending private school in the city. There was a lot more diversity. There was a lot more diversity in thought, and I was able to converse with different people. And secondly, and possibly more importantly, I joined youth government. And youth and government was able to connect me with people all across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and I was able to gain different perspectives like that. And that was really helpful to make sure that I was able to think critically and able to take in information and put out clear and concise thoughts that were not only well thought out, but that were reasonable. I personally haven't experienced uh, the alt-right pipeline. I don't know much about it. However, uh, going off the descriptions uh, that Tara and Alex have described, it certainly seems like a problem that's gone off of social media such as YouTube. And I definitely think that's a problem that needs to be addressed. However, as you keep, uh, as people are saying, uh, partisanship in news and social media will get worse as technology becomes more capable. I think that's only for a certain sector of a vulnerable population. However, for the more educated, more informed population, I think as technology becomes more and more capable, they will also get more and more uh, sensible and become more like you know bipartisan, not even bipartisan, panpartisan, uh, encompassing the views, accepting, not encompassing, accepting, basically. Uh, allowing other people to hold their own personal opinions while also uh, holding their own set of beliefs, basically a sense of acceptance. And I think those sensible people will uh, will be the majority as technology becomes more and more capable. I know this goes off the uh, how I was saying in the first question, how the situation with younger people is that some people or actually I would say quite a bit uh, of people uh, in the younger generation have used social media to spread information and not misinformation or propaganda. I think likewise, as technology usage gets uh, is increased, I think that sector of people will become more pan-partisan. However, as Alex and Tara have said, the alt-right pipeline is still a major issue that needs to be addressed. And if uncontrolled, could lead to more dire consequences. I'll say personally, I actually tend to disagree with Ethway on this issue because I think we've seen a really disturbing pattern since the beginning in the like, first like, start of the pro proliferation of the social media industry and in that it's just become so much worse, like uh, political partisanship on these platforms and in this country, it's become so much worse because of the efficiency with which these social media websites can spread news, misleading news, just to engage uh, users of its platform. And that's how they profit. They profit from spreading this news and engaging people. While you know, we can all recognize that the alt-right pipeline is really destructive to our society, social media websites profit off of that. And the way I see it is technology develops that only be able to distribute this information more and more efficiently, and it's going to become a worse and worse problem. It doesn't like matter if these companies start like, you know, 
throwing rainbow flags in their logos during Pride Month. They do not care about marginalized communities. They will do whatever they can to make a profit. And that's why we've seen this problem get so much worse within the past 10 years, because the technology for them to uh, exploit this like harm like in you know the American population, like their ability to do that has become so much more possible because of the expansion of this technology and their ability to proliferate this information faster. And I don't think it's going to slow down until we like really intervene in this area. Uh, Kemper, if I may, uh, I, I see you're stating that, like, you know, how media could control, uh, like, you know, they're throwing out other, like, uh, crap on uh, platforms such as this. However, we do need to recognize that as generations have passed, the average IQ, the average critical thinking skills of a person have increased. Right now, teenagers of this generation, like you, me, everyone in this call, we have more critical thinking skills than people who were teenagers 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Right now, we have the thought, we have the skills to decipher what is propaganda and what is not propaganda. And if we can use that, then yes, technology will benefit us and uh, the increased use of technology will lead to more pan-partisanship. However, I, I do not say I'm disagreeing with you. Like, you know, there are certain sectors of the population, especially in the teenage generation, who are not using the skills and just accept what is blatantly thrown out to them by these media websites. Now, that is a problem that we need to address. However, it is it is not to the rate which y'all are stating it to be currently. I think the problem is much, much less. I want to say you're, the way you're emphasizing it seems like about 70 to 80% of the uh, teenage population is facing such an issue. With what I'm trying to say, I think that rate is much closer to 40%. It's not as dire as y'all are stating to be. It's still a dire issue. I'm not saying that it isn't. It's just not as dire as y'all set it out to be. Yeah, I think um, I sort of want to explore this from more of like a fundamental way about the way the industry is set up than necessarily specific groups that propaganda or echo chambers may be affecting. I think it's hard to like put a percentage onto that because you're talking about so many different things at once. Um, and you're talking about different definitions of things and what is, again, like the, the first conversation we had, what, what counts as propaganda, what counts as misinformation, and what counts as an opinion piece. There's a lot of gray areas there. We touched on that in the beginning. Um, and so it would be hard to place uh, a correct level of emphasis on this. Um, but I do want to talk about something that Kemper mentioned, which is uh, the, the profit motive and how it fuels the industry. I, I do believe that um, fundamentally, as the the critical thinking skills of a generation rise up or the um, political correctness necessarily or, or supposedly like the political correctness of a generation rises up and becomes more commonplace. Um, it is very possible that people will start to more fundamentally disagree with the ways that the internet is set up and the ways that echo chambers are set up. But I don't think that that general opinion of the population will necessarily be reflected in the changes that social media companies are going to make. Because again, like Kemper was saying, the original profit motive of a corporation relies on their constant engagement. And so I think as long as that profit motive is the only uh, factor influencing the way that social media corporations are set up and the way that they um, want their users to interact with their sites, I don't necessarily think that we're going to see a lot of changes just because people want to see more pan-partisanship. Um, I, I don't think that the profit motive uh, unless that becomes what is more profitable and unless pan-partisan pan content and pan-partisan, you know, spaces on the internet become what is more engaging to people, I don't necessarily think that we're going to make that shift just because that's what the general population means. Because under the capitalist system we exist in, the general 
opinion and the general want of the population is not always reflected in the decisions made by a corporation. Yeah, I completely agree. agree with you there. That's definitely true. Today, capitalism has taken over the world. And basically, we're looking at these huge corporations, Amazon uh, being the number one corporation as of today, holding such a powerful influence over the American populace. So I think definitely corporations are starting to take a hold and maybe like they are undermining our uh, voices as American citizens. So I definitely think that based on how the profit motive is set up, we're definitely set up again to see that polarization, but we're also set up to see like Kemper mentioned previously, companies changing their Instagram logos to pride flags and saying that Black Lives Matter and other performative wokeness like this, because at the end of the day, what they care about is their checkbook. And this current system is not set up for them to care about pan-partisanship. And until we fundamentally change the basis, there's not a lot that can be done to prevent social media from creating polarization, from creating, from not fairly representing the people. Yeah, that's a disappointing reality. I mean, we just have to come to accept it or how will we fight it? Thank you so much for those insightful answers. A big thank you to all of our guests for joining me today. Thank you, Anne. This is a great and important conversation, and I know there is so much more to come from this interview. Now, let's hear from some alumni. When you attend the Conference on National Affairs, you join an incredible group of engaged and active citizens. You're bound to these other delegates in ways big and small. In short, you're part of a family. We've gotten some messages here from several of our Kona ancestors. They're working in all areas of society, making a difference all over the nation. Let's hear the stories of five such alumni now. Hello, Kona friends. This is Sam Adams, and I was a delegate in 1994 and 1995 at the conference and have been a part of it every year since then. This will be the first year in, uh, I guess, 27 years that I haven't been around. And uh, we'll certainly be missing all of you. And I just wanted to say a, a quick uh, shout out and just tell you that in my new position with uh, state government, I was thinking the other day how a lot of the things that I use every single day um, are not just things I learned from uh, you know being a part of the, the staff at Youth and Government in the past 20-something years, but really goes back to the things I learned in high school through youth and government, through the Conference on National Affairs. And, uh, I, you know, my advice is to, to y'all is to just have fun, enjoy your time, enjoy this opportunity, and, you know, just take, uh, take full advantage of it. But I wish you all well. I wish the staff well uh, as they execute the program, as well as the volunteers. And uh, just wish y'all uh, all to have a great week. Uh, may God truly bless you. Take care. Hello, my name is Sam Mills, and I had the distinct honor and pleasure of being part of the Texas delegation at Kona 2020. Um, it was kind of interesting to have the whole experience from my room and its comforts and, well, its discomforts, not being able to socialize and interact with the people in the way that I wanted to. But nonetheless, it was an incredible time um, that I was able to share with so many talented and amazing people across the United States, people with great ideas who reinstilled a lot of my faith in democracy, especially given a lot of the toxic, vitriolic conduct that we see across the political spectrum these days. And YG as a whole was just such an amazing experience for me in high school. It forced me to completely reevaluate my political beliefs and values and 
exposed me to a whole set of perspectives that I had never considered in the past. And so it made me um, not just a better debater, it not only gave me the opportunity to meet new people, but also grow as a person and think a lot more about um, the philosophy that I wanted to contribute as a leader and as someone who wants to serve his community. So uh, Kona is great for that. You'll be able to meet so many amazing people as delegates just like I did. And I wish all of you, especially um, all of my friends from the Texas delegation, the best going forward. Um, Post Kona has been incredible, uh, just having the opportunity to apply all the lessons that I've learned um, and going forward as an international politics major in college. It's been a tremendous experience, and I have everything to credit to the incredible experience I had at Kona. So all the best to all of you. You will have a great time. Uh, be out there. Make some, Take some risks. Make all the friends you can, and you will not regret it. Uh, so best to all of you, and enjoy it all. Hello, Kona United Delegates. My name is James Farnsworth. I'm a conference alum from the Minnesota delegation. I attended Kona on the Mountain uh, beginning in 2013 for four years, and then I returned as the college media director um, the year after I graduated high school. Um, I just wanted to leave you this voice message to wish you well with this year's virtual conference. I have no doubt that the debate will continue to be rigorous and the connections and the dialogue will continue to be enriching this year, even though unfortunately you can't be enjoying this experience on the mountain in North Carolina. Um, I'll be serving as a volunteer, Zoom Tech, in um, several of the committees, so I hope to see you there and look forward to watching the proceedings um, from that vantage point. Um, I happen to serve currently as an elected official in the state of Minnesota, and I um, certainly directly attribute um, Kona to getting me to where I am today in terms of the lessons that I was able to learn about public service, about servant leadership, and many other critical values. Um, so I'm really thankful for my time in Kona. I'm really grateful all of you are participating, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. A special shout out to the Minnesota delegation. I know you'll do great, and I look forward to watching the conference this year from afar, and of course, via the Blue Ridge Journal on social media and other places on the internet. Best of luck, and may the Blue Ridge spirit be with you. Hey, y'all. My name is Amy Dennis from the family of Alabama. I attended as a delegate to Kona from 2012 to 2014. I returned as the media director and have been attending as conference staff ever since then. Kona has always been such a bright spot in my life. Um, I have made so many memories up on the mountain and experienced so much life um, during the weeks that I attended Kona. And I'll just have to say that, that the strongest relationships and some of the people that I really consider family are people that I met at Kona. And these people are so intelligent, so creative, thoughtful, caring, just unlike people that you normally meet. And I am so awestruck by the people that I've met at Kona and the experiences that I've had, the friendships that have formed, and really the people who have supported me and cheered me on from miles away for so many years. And that's just the power of Kona. And the spirit of the conference really has, has the power to change your life and 
So for delegates who are attending this year, albeit virtually, I still believe that that spirit is going to be present throughout the week. So I would just say take advantage of it, lean into it, connect with these people, share your ideas, learn, grow, and allow this conference to kind of catapult you into your next big adventure, allow it to inspire you. And know that you have so many people who are rooting for you and cheering you on and wish you all the best this week. I hope to meet you all on the mountain in person sometime very soon. Until then, all the best. Hello to all. This message is for the Minnesota Kona delegation. My name is Deanna Ray, and I was a delegate from 2012 to 2014. I wanted to send you all a message that I would have appreciated hearing when I was a delegate. So first, I want to congratulate you all on where you are today. You have put so much work into preparing for this conference. You drafted a proposal. You presented the proposal in, a, in front of a large group of people. You probably made up some statistics. That's fine. But most important of all, you are here where you are today, and that is a big accomplishment. So pat yourself on the back. My second thing that I wanted to share with you all is that you are all amazing people, and you are going to do great things with your life. And the reason why I say that is because I have seen numerous times my fellow Kona delegates go far and beyond into various different places. I have seen my friends become educators. I've seen them become politicians. I've seen some intern with President Obama. I've seen them become business owners. And so that's why I know that you are meant to do great things with the skills that you learn at these conferences. And as we all know, with great power comes great responsibility. And so when you go back to your model assembly or model United Nations, remember that you are a leader and people will look up to you. So make sure you Include others in your community. Uh, share your wisdom, but most important of all, be kind and serve with honor. I am still very close with my Kona delegates. In fact, just this week, we were planning to get a lunch together. And, you know, these folks that are around you are a very close group of friends. And I hope you all continue to talk after this conference because this is a very reliable group of people and you folks are going through the same thing together. Um, one last fun story, uh, you remember where we had to do everything by paper at the conference? We had no internet, no computers. And so I remember when a delegate would share their proposal and by the time they're done, so many notes would be passed up to the podium that all you could see is a pair of eyes and a placard. I'm probably exaggerating, but it was very scary to do statistics where you did not have internet. And, uh, for me personally, Kona has significantly impacted my life where I went to law school. I became a lawyer at age 23. I clerked for a judge, and I am now an assistant county attorney where I get to make a difference in people's lives every single day. And without Kona, that would have not been possible. And one last thing for some of you who are maybe having a hard time, I would just say, remember to reflect on your accomplishments and remember that you have put in good work to where you are today. So good luck to you all. Make sure you are all staying safe. Hopefully pandemic will end soon. And hopefully I will see you someday on the mountain. Thank you for those alumni voice messages. We want to hear from more of you. 
All delegates, alumni, and friends should send story ideas, shout-outs, or just wishes for a great conference. Please send them as a voice message or other method of recording and email it to media at ymcacona.org. In your message, state your name, delegation, and how many years you've attended the conference. As always, remember to head over to our website at ymcacona.org and click on the media tab to look at our fabulous blog, read our amazing articles, witness some crazy good graphics, catch our mind-boggling videos, and of course, never miss an episode of the Blue Ridge Journal's official podcast, Our Voices Amplified. Thank you so much for listening, and keep raising those voices, Kona Delegates.